The reading is taken from the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 25, starting at verse 14. Again, it would be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, and to another one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with the two talents gained two more. But the man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with the two talents also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, You wicked, lazy servant, so you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers, so that when I returned I would have received it back with interest. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? 
When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. As we sit, let's pray. Our Father God, we pray for your Spirit to help us to understand Christ's teaching and to apply that teaching in our lives. For his name's sake, amen. We live in a society which is certainly strongly focused upon, if not obsessed with, education and assessment in education. And indeed, it's already generated its own jargon. So there is formative assessment, and that's aimed at evaluating the progress of the student in line with expectations given age and ability. And if that's sensibly and sensitively applied, it can be very helpful in identifying the strengths and the weaknesses of the student and setting a learning agenda for the next phase. But there's also summative assessment, and that's a final evaluation. Is it an A star or a D at GCSE? Are the A-level grades good enough to take up that place at college? Is the final degree result a first or a lower second? Actually, of course, we're pretty obsessed with assessment everywhere in our lives. Did you and your team meet their target last year? Uh, Did the project succeed or fail? What was the bottom line for the company last year? Or more prosaically, did you meet your target for reducing your weight? Or going to the gym? Or staying in touch with friends? Now, assessment is also central to the Christian faith. But it comes by another name, judgment. And indeed, we affirm every week that Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. To judge the living and the dead. Now, this is not the most popular Christian doctrine. And some either tone it down or quietly forget it. But you can't do that and remain faithful to the reported teaching of Jesus. 
And this morning what I want to do is to look at two very well-known parables of Jesus, which John has just read to us, the parable of the talents and the parable of the sheep and the goats. Now, recall the context of Jesus' teaching here. It's going back into chapter 24, where Jesus is responding to the disciples' question, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And that's followed by a warning against speculation about when the coming might be, and an emphasis on keeping watch and being ready. That is, attend to the tasks that God has assigned to us in every aspect of our lives. And these two parables explore in more detail what that means. So let's remind ourselves of the details. First of all, the parable of the talents. Now, talents, in their original sense, are sums of money. There's a difference among scholars as to how much money is involved here. Some suggest it's 10 years' wages. But in fact, it's a a large amount. These are large amounts. And they are, as you noted, unequally allocated to the servants, each according to his ability. And of course, that makes common sense if the intention is that they should go and trade with these talents. Now, two servants, of course, took up the challenge. The other one buried the money in a hole in the ground. And I suppose his thinking was that at least he wouldn't lose it. So let's look at this contrast. Verses 19 to 23. The master returns, and he settles account with the first two servants. Both have increased their capital, in fact, doubling what was entrusted to them. And both received the same commendation. Well done. Good and faithful servant, you have been faithful in a few things. And the emphasis here is that the outcomes are a sign of their commitment to serve, their faithfulness. And their rewards are similar. Greater responsibilities for many things compared to their previous responsibility for few things. And they get the approval of the master to share in his happiness. Now, verses 24-27, the contrast with the third servant. He justifies his inaction by attacking the master's character. He has, he says, played safe, not even entrusting the money to the bankers. No wonder the master condemns him as wicked and lazy and implicitly useless. His comeuppance is to be stripped of any future responsibility, and he's effectively dismissed from the service of the master. So how should we understand and apply this parable? First of all, let's remind ourselves of the overarching framework. We're living in the age between the first coming of Christ in his incarnation to inaugurate his kingdom and the time when he will come to complete it. The end game is God's people living in a renewed earth under the gracious and loving rule of Christ, fulfilling the original intention that humankind should be stewards of the created order. So our vocation now is to be responsible stewards of all that is entrusted to us, working to spread the good news of Christ's kingdom, promote shalom, peace and flourishing between people, and to care for the creation. 
and none of that activity will be wasted as it will be built into the structure of the renewed heaven and the renewed earth. Our faithfulness in these tasks, each according to his or her ability, is the basis on which our lives are to be evaluated and will determine our responsibilities in God's renewed creation. If I may put it this way, resurrection life is not going to be an extended and restful retirement. No, there will be work to be done and there will be tasks to be performed. Now let's turn to the second parable, the sheep and the goats. If the idea of an evaluative final judgment is only implicit in the parable of the talents, it is explicit in this teaching of Jesus, the parable of the sheep and the goats. The background includes Daniel 7, where God comes to judge the nations and one like a son of man is given authority and everlasting dominion or Isaiah 9, where the prophet foresees a child is born, a son is given, he will reign establishing and upholding his kingdom with justice and righteousness. And the image which Jesus uses is that of a flock of sheep and goats. Now, for reasons which I confess I don't understand, it's more effective, apparently, to graze sheep and goats together. But, of course, the sheep are more valuable. Now, Jesus' first hearers would have understood immediately the process of separation and the evaluation of the two types of animal. Sheep in the Old Testament are often a metaphor for God's people. And, as in so many cultures, in Jewish culture, left is bad, right is good. So what is the basis of evaluation here? Let me remind you of verses 37 to 40. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. It's evidence that faithfulness to Christ's kingdom is equated here with acts of service. But who is to be served? One of the least of these brothers of mine. Now, there are different interpretations of this phrase. Some say the brothers are the poor and needy within the Christian community. And point to Matthew 10:42, where serving Jesus' disciples is definitely in view. Others say, no, brothers are the poor and needy in general. And those who hold this view note that Jesus does not specify the disciples here, and it would be perfectly not natural for a caring and compassionate king to identify in this way with the disadvantaged among his subjects. Either way, the implied responsibility of the followers of Jesus is very challenging. Both within and without the worldwide church, there are millions who need our help. Let's not forget that. 
Let's not succumb to compassion fatigue. So what are we to make of these two parables? Clearly put together, have a single, as it were, purpose. First of all, I want us to recall that these two parables are not teaching, they're not teaching that we earn our salvation by doing good works of various kinds. That is completely contrary to other teaching in the New Testament, and I'm going to revisit this matter again in the next sermon in this series at the beginning of March. Now, the emphasis of these parables is on faithful service, in the use of resources, and in caring for the disadvantaged by those who identify themselves as Jesus' disciples and are already living their lives under his gracious rule. I think it's very important to note that Christ's judgment will not be only negative. It won't be only negative, focusing solely on our sins and omissions. On the contrary, the evaluation will give full recognition to our faithful service in the use of our talents and in serving others. We can expect on the day of judgment commendation for these things. Well done, good and faithful servant. Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. True, our failures to serve and to show compassion will also be noted. But that is not the whole picture by any means. Finally, let's note the consequences of Christ's judgment on those who have shown themselves <coughs> faithful. They will be given greater responsibilities and a greater share in Christ's kingdom and the renewed creation. But what of those who fail the test, whose lack of faithfulness results in failure to use wisely the resources entrusted to them and in disregard for the, leader, the needy? I think the implication of these parables is that they have signaled that they are not committed to Christ's kingdom. Let me say that again, because I think it's very important. The implication of these parables is that those who have failed to do these things have signaled that they are not committed to Jesus' kingdom. And the consequence is that they will be excluded from his people and his rule when he returns. Verse 30, and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness. Verse 41, depart from me, you who are cursed. Now these verses also suggest that exclusion will involve an element of punishment. And that is a fraught question, which we need to put aside for now, but will be returned to later in the sermon series. I think that Jesus' purpose in telling these two parables is evidently to motivate his disciples to serve appropriately in his kingdom. Let me go back to the analogy with education and training. The criteria for judgment 
is the final examination or test, the summative assessment. That is to help the candidates to direct their attention to the materials they need to understand, the skills or techniques they need to master, what will be expected of them, and then apply themselves in so doing. Now, formative assessment is part of this process, checking, understanding, and skills as they are acquired, setting interim tasks and, and, and targets. Now, I think it's very easy for Christians to get so absorbed by the final judgment that they become effectively paralyzed. A bit like the teenager who declares that she is never going to pass GCSE maths because it's so difficult if you are a 14-year-old. I think for all of us, the way forward is to take small steps in using our resources and our capacities to serve in Christ's kingdom. To encourage one another in service. To hold each other to account. That kind of formative assessment is vital in the Christian life and prepares us for the day of judgment. And remember, if you are truly committed to Christ and his kingdom, you will not be excluded on that day. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you that as those committed to Christ's kingdom, we need not fear the day of judgment. Help us now to be faithful in the use of our abilities, time, and resources to serve your kingdom, not least in the service of the poor and the disadvantaged. In Christ's name, amen.